Lord, you are good even when we're bad. So help us today to get the encouragement out of the word of rebuke that you give in our passage to the Jewish leaders today. May we not think that we're better than them, but Lord, may we see how to be better than them in you by learning the lesson that you gave them. Thank you for bringing us here today. Bless your word and all that we do. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Can you give it up for Jesus one more time? We love you, Lord. And we love you. You may be seated. Today's message is going to be 39 verses, most of it all being a rebuke. Out of Matthew chapter 23, I'm here, and I'm assuming you are well rested. How many of you got an extra hour of sleep? How many of you just stayed up an extra hour? I've been there before. Trust me, I can relate to it. Before we get to the passage, I want to share with you a few things that are going to help give us the runway that we need in this message today, some introductory work. So look at your neighbor and say, buckle up. Okay, so it is going to get bumpy, but I want to give you some introductory things. Uh, The first thing that you're going to realize is that Jesus is going to lay it down on the Jewish leaders. Now, I was talking to my friend, and this is a cool phrase to say, who is getting his PhD in New Testament studies. So he's a really smart guy. I love saying that. I have a friend getting his PhD in New Testament studies. He's doing it on the book of Matthew, only about 10 verses, and he plans to write a few hundred pages on those few verses. One of the things that he does, because I was asking him, what do you do to make such an impact into those verses? He says we go deep into every aspect of the book so that when we touch on those verses, we have so much depth already established. And he began to share that one of the things you have to understand about Matthew and his gospel is that Matthew is a Jewish man, Jewish tax collector that's been converted, and he is primarily writing to Jewish people And what he does is contains the largest portions of Jesus' rebukes and harshest words to the Jewish people. And that's why if you've been noticing all throughout the book of Matthew, he never lets up on them guys, man. He's going after them nonstop. And today is going to be his harshest criticism of them. Now, what could happen is some people have already looked at this naively in a place like Matthew, and have said, you know what? Jesus loves the pagans in a different kind of way, a gentler way, and the religious people, he just doesn't like them. So all you religious folks, listen to what Jesus says. He hates them more than he hates RuPaul or whatever. Now, we know Jesus doesn't hate, but you kind of get that sentiment from people that if you're religious, you're the worst kind of sinner. That's actually not even close to true. Let me give you a little helpful hint. In the book of Matthew, he's already called pagan people dogs and says, I have not even come for you. And she's like, well, don't the dogs get crumbs? And he's like, okay, I'll heal you. But my friends, Sodom and Gomorrah is not even around to have the conversation. He's destroyed entire civilizations. So this idea that the religious folks are the ones we can just make a punching bag out of the whole time and then look down on them, no, 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 no. Listen to me, my friends. When you're reading the book of Matthew, you're hearing God deal with his own people. He's telling the other people like Rome and Greece and Egypt from way back in the other prophets book, I'm already done with you. You guys can expect hellfire and judgment now. 
So it's actually a mercy and a grace that he's still dealing with the Pharisees. Uh, Let me put it to you this way. A Pharisee was much better than a Roman pagan worshiping, sacrificing their children type of person. A Pharisee was a much better person than the Egyptians, than the Aztecs, than the Mayans. Are you listening? God had already said to Egypt, I'm going to destroy you. He said to the surrounding nations, I'm done with you. So what should we first of all take away when we read this is not some type of superiority complex that we get permission now to slap around the church and all those hypocrites and act like we're better than them. No, do you remember Noah? Uh, God only saved his people, ate and all, and destroyed the whole earth. Have you ever read Revelation? The blood will be as high as a horse's head for uh, over 100 miles. Yeah, bro, that's a lot of blood. Are you listening to me? So God is not like looking at all y'all non-Jewish people, me in there as well, and him just going, I'm not so mad at you guys, but those religious people, I'm so mad. No, no, you missed the whole point. Uh, He's already destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. He's already cursed Egypt. He's already basically said to Caesar and all of Rome and Greece through the prophecies of Daniel, y'all going to hell, I'm done with you. He's called the pagan nations around them dogs, and he says they're unclean, they're unfit. So literally what you are watching here in chapter 23 is God deal with the best of humanity, not the worst. This this is the best. These are his people that he has kept, and they are no longer idolaters, which he hates. They are no longer sacrificing their children, which he hates. They are no longer having same-sex relationships, Sodom and Gomorrah, which he hates. They are at least trying to do this covenant. So they are to be respected, and you'll hear that in the beginning portion as he starts to afterward call them snakes and vipers and whitewashed tombs. So number one, we better be careful on how we view God's people even when he's spanking them because it would be like me disciplining one of my children and then you walking over going, yeah, because they're just a stupid kid. I'll be like, whoa, hold on. No, 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 no. My discipline is because I love them. I believe in what I'm instilling into them. And so you're watching church folk get rebuked because I think there's, a, there's an application to that. And I want to touch on that in just a moment. You're watching the, the, the family business happen. And you and I want to kind of interject our opinion into that. Be careful because these are his people. The second thing we do have to understand, though, is religious people can go to hell, too, with pagans. So we are not supposed to walk away from this and go, well, I'm religious, that means I'm okay. No, really, you're supposed to walk away if you're religious, bearing the weight of this rebuke going, I hope I'm not like that. Uh, Be honest with yourself as the rebukes are coming forth, there'll be eight in all, that you are looking at your life and examining it because otherwise you can be deceived by your religiosity. And so, yes, the Pharisees were not pagans. They believed in the one true God of Israel, star, check next to their name. Uh, They believed in this covenant. This was their covenant with God through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, check. 
But what they had not done were the other things that God wanted them to do, justice and mercy and true spirituality, not just external uh, spirituality. And then that brings us uh, to the third thing I want us to get as an introduction is this word hypocrite. Everybody say hypocrite. Now, most of us think we know what that means, but I don't think we do. Because if I were to ask most people on the streets, what is a hypocrite? And by the way, that's the name Jesus is going to lead in with every single time in the rebuke. So it's almost like he substitutes their name for hypocrite. He's like, yo, hypocrite, I'm talking to you. He does that eight times. You'll notice that. I want to make sure we understand that word because when we talk to people on the streets about a hypocrite, what does that mean in religious context? Most people are going to take it to mean somebody that makes mistakes. But that is not true. A hypocrite is not someone who makes mistakes. Literally, the Greek word hypocritus just simply means actor, pretender. So I want to give you an example. Let's say you came out to dinner with my wife and I, and we're hanging out. But at some point in the dinner, my wife and I start to get into an argument. And maybe I raise my voice, and I do something I'm not supposed to do. If you walk out of that dinner thinking, I am a hypocrite, you don't know the definition of hypocrite. Because a hypocrite is not somebody who sins. It's not somebody who makes mistakes. This is the clear distinction of what a hypocrite is according to the scriptures. It is someone who says one thing but does another. So let's go back to that dinner and where I raised my voice, do something I shouldn't have done. Did I repent? Did I say, I'm sorry, you had to see that? You see, by admitting and repenting, I am showing you that the same standard I preach on Sunday, the same thing that we read in the Bible, I affirm, I agree with, I know that is true. But I also know I didn't act like that, and I admit that is true. Does everybody get the difference? You see, the hypocrite would mistreat their wife with you in, 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 their, company, in, your, in their company and then pretend nothing happened. It's not wrong. You see, the hypocrite is a pretender, not just someone who makes mistakes. Now, somebody goes, man, I can do this really good. I got, I got it here, man. I'll just tell you, I'm a sinner. I sin all the time. Don't look to me as an example. I'm good. True, you are no longer a, a hypocrite. You are good at that. But now you know what you are? You are a sinner. You're just full out sinning now. So you don't just get to be like, hey, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm always going to let you down. Just deal with it. No, because that, you're outside the category of God's people now. God's people are supposed to do both and affirm the things of God, say, I believe the things of God, and then live the things of God. And so when you hear them being called hypocrites, they're not just being picked on by Jesus for making mistakes. That would be harsh. That would be like us looking at Kanye going, oh, he did this, he did that. Oh, he's a hypocrite. Look at him. See, that's harsh. How many of you started off knowing everything in Christianity, having all the Ten Commandments nailed down? You all still working on that right now? So, so the point isn't, do we live sinless? Because the devil's slick. Let me tell you how the devil, he's cunning and he's slick. He'll try to get you to think you're not ready for church because you still got issues. And if you come to church, you're going to be a hypocrite. And so don't go to church and be a hypocrite. It's better being out there. How many have heard that lie before? That is a cunning, it is a slick lie. I know it, but it's still a lie. It's better for you to come here 
Spit up on yourself as a spiritual babe. Make your mistakes. Poo-poo your pants. Need to be changed by people in the church. That's all right. We don't look down on you for that because people have been gracious with us. And if you look at the Bible, if a hypocrite is somebody who makes a mistake, then everybody but Jesus is a hypocrite. Moses is a hypocrite. Paul's a hypocrite. No, because hypocrite does not equal someone who makes mistakes. Hypocrite equals someone who pretends that they don't make mistakes. Hypocrite equals saying one thing, affirming one thing, and doing another thing without any remorse, without any repentance, without any spiritual growth. So look at your neighbor and say, I'm not a hypocrite. If you can say it and mean it, please say it. I, and here's, here's everybody look up at me. I'm not a hypocrite. Have I sinned? Yes, but I have confessed my sins by God's grace. So those three things, let's go through them really quick because then we're going to read 39 verses. Y'all ready? Okay. Number one, we don't look down on the Jewish people. We actually have a biblical worldview and go, this was the best of mankind at 30 A.D., There they are. That's the best of us, okay? So anything you say against them is worse towards you, your culture, your people group, because let's just make it plain again. In the jungles of Africa, they were eating each other, cannibalism. In in, uh, the Latin America, they were sacrificing their children. The Romans, the pagans like my folk were oppressing the entire nation and then sacrificing the people they killed. Are you guys listening to me? The Jewish people were the best people on the earth at that time, and they were God people. Don't look down on them and their culture and what God was dealing with. That's family business. That's why he said, it's my house that you're messing up because he talked about his father's house. Number two, we don't make excuses to be hypocrites. Religious people can go to hell too. And then number three, we know truly what a hypocrite is and we're not one of those. We live by the word of God. Are you guys ready? Amen. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do. Did you get it? Did you get the compliment right there? Does he say, listen to Caesar, listen to the, the, the Hindu gurus, uh, listen to the high priest of Machu Picchu? No, no, no. Listen to me. He's very clear. He's like, these are my boys. You better listen to them. Honor them. Be careful to do everything they tell you. Why? Because they're still coming right out of here. But what he says to them is don't do what they do because they are true in what they're telling you. When they show up at the Sabbath, they're true in what they're telling you. Nobody else got the book but them. Nobody else. Are y'all listening? I'm going to put my culture out there. Italy don't have the book. Poland didn't have the book. No other nation had the book. These folks had the book. He said, you better listen to them and be careful to do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do. See that You see the difference right there? So you better put some respect on it. Put respect on, and see, this is what I would say right here to everybody that's got problems with the American church, because I'm going to try to bring this back to us all the time. I understand there's a lot of pimping pastors. I understand there's a lot of bootlegging bishops. I understand all that. But if they coming from this, you better listen to this, because you will not be able to go to hell and go, they were bootleg bishop. 
They were a pimping pastor. And God say back to you, well, I guess you didn't have to listen to this. No, God's going to say, you better have listened to this. You got to be smart enough on your own to go listen to this, but not what they do. Okay? So you better be responsible. Take this serious. This is Christianity, not Nicianity, not Americanity, not churchianity. This is Christianity. And you will not get away with just simply saying, well, they were bootleg. They were pimps. They were all wrong. I don't go to church anymore. No, God's going to say, you better have listened to what they were telling you from this. And if you didn't like that, good, that bad church, find a good church. Amen. So he said, be careful to do everything they tell you. Be careful. Somebody say, be careful. Thank you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Woman caught in adultery. Where's the husband? He's probably the dude with one of the stones. You see, they, are, they say they're against adultery, but they're committing adultery. They say they're against oppression because Rome is oppressing them, but then they go oppress the poor Jews. Are y'all listening? Come on, man. They are now oppressors themselves. And then he goes on to say, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put it on other people's shoulders. This is supposed to get you reminiscent to what the Egyptians had did to them. The Egyptians did the Jewish people wrong. Now the Jewish people doing their own people wrong. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And that's where you go to a lot of churches these days. They'll tell you all the things you're supposed to do, but they're never going to give you a mentor. They're never going to give you a real Bible study, discipleship, one-on-one mentorship. They got one pastor that does it all. You can't get a hold of him. I can't even get a hold of him, and he's my friend. They think they're better than what they are, and then you get disappointed because you feel the weight. Man, I'm supposed to live for Jesus. I'm supposed to do these things, but I don't know how. They don't help. That was their problem. Look at verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you only have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Who's your instructor? The Messiah. Amen. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. You go down. For Jesus, he brings you up. You go up against Jesus, he brings you down. Come on, somebody tweet that. I'm telling you. You go down for Jesus, he lifts you up. You give up everything. You surrender your life for him. He will lift you up. But you come up against Jesus, he's going to knock you down. And here's the truth about this, is that he said, don't put any of these titles on a man. And so when we read this, there's really only two ways to take it. The first way is to say, oh, it's okay now in the church to call people instructors, professors, and teachers, and all of that as a title, or we're supposed to obey it as he taught it. Now, I lean more towards the way that being in the church does not change this command. And so, listen to me. I am hesitant to call a man a professor. I am hesitant to call somebody by a title. If he said, call him Jesus, why can't I call you Mike? But out of respect, you may have to call them by their last name. Some of you in college, as we say you're in the Babylonian system, you may have to call them professor if they don't want you to call them Mr. So-and-so. But here's what I got to say to you. If some of you want to go, well, he's only talking about not doing it in the wrong way, then y'all can't beat up Roman Catholics for calling their pastors father. 
because that's what they used to call their teachers back then too was father so-and-so. See, I want to be consistent. I don't want you to call me father, so I'm not calling him father. And at the same time, I don't want you to call me professor. I don't want you to call me teacher. I don't want you to call me any of these things. You know what I want you to call me? By my name, because we're all brothers and sisters. But listen, if you respect me, you'll get the teacher. If you respect me, I'll give you the instruction. If you come to me humbly as a student, I'll give you all those things. I don't need you to puff me up with that title because that can be a temptation from Satan to get me to look at myself and stop looking at Jesus, who is everybody's instructor. So be careful how you give out titles. Listen to Paul in the epistles. Paul, the apostle. So do I teach? Yes. Do I instruct? Do I father spiritually, even as Paul said? Yes. But he never made that a title that he had to be called in religious context. And so when you come up to me and you call me Pastor Joe, just understand that in my conscience, you're violating what I feel comfortable with. And I have let you do that because I don't want to be weird and make you feel all dumb when you come up to me like, Pastor Joe, don't call me Pastor Joe. But if I'm going to go verse by verse through the Bible and tell you my preference on a scripture like this that most of the time throughout the years I haven't had time to get into, this is why after you get to know me, I always tell you, call me Joe. And that's not just because I want us to be casual. That's because I fear God. I honestly believe that we are not to put titles before people's names on this earth when it comes to the way we respect and honor them. We don't need to give that title to respect and honor. We res- you, you will respect me as a teacher, not by calling me a teacher, but by listening to what I teach and doing it. You, you, you don't give me more respect by just calling me Pastor Joe. And I know a lot of you grew up in, in circles like that, but I mean, how much more could, clearer could he call it or say it? He said, this is how you are to talk to each other as brothers, as brothers. And then look, look, I say this in all humility, and I put it in my book, Discipleship Churches. I put it in all humility. Show me one time where anybody got called by their title. Tell me where Paul is called Apostle Paul or Bishop Paul or whatever. They're never talking to each other like that. As a matter of fact, whenever we read the Bible, you know, I just open it up here to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then here you go to Peter, one of the main apostles, right? What does Peter say here in... Um, and first Peter, Peter, comma, an apostle of Christ Jesus. None of these men or women ever walked around requiring you to give them that title. Would you be careful with that? Would you at least think about it? Because otherwise, let me just say this to all my good Protestant friends, if you cool with calling bishop so-and-so, apostle this, prophet this, prophetess this, then you should have no problem with calling them father as well or the Catholics doing it because that is in the same exact context. One time they came to a missionary, and I don't believe this applies to your parents because he actually uses the title father and mother in his own writings, uh, in his own talks. Jesus said, who's my mother? Talking about his own mother. So I don't believe this is in the context of family. I believe it's outside of family in the, in the religious context. But one man took this so serious, he was on the mission field, and somebody told him, man, you've got to come back home. Your father has died. He said, you lie. I only have one father, and he can never die, <laughs> and I'm staying right here. Now, that wasn't to dishonor his father, but that was a mindset that he had. My earthly dad is not the source of my life. 
the sword, and here's from anybody who doesn't know their father. Come on, I'm going to tell you you have a real father. Because sometimes people think church fathers, make-believe father. God the father, make-believe father. No, no, no. If it wasn't for God the father creating the entire universe, you wouldn't be here to begin with. And no fathers would be here. No mothers would be here. So if you have a father that hasn't taken you serious and hasn't been in your life, don't you be discouraged. The God of all heaven and earth, the creator, has made it so for you to be here. Your earthly father played a part for what? Five minutes? But God, the sovereign God, the Father, has made an entire universe for you to be here. You're here with a purpose. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Let's go to these eight woes. They're very similar to the seven woes in Isaiah 5.1. And so if you want to look back on that to see, once again, Jesus is always like the prophets. Why? Because when the prophets speak, they always say, the word of the Lord came. Who is the word of the Lord according to John? Jesus. They were always speaking on behalf of Jesus. So it's not like Jesus was like Isaiah. It's Isaiah was like Jesus. So Jesus is here now saying, Isaiah, let me show you how I'm going to do it. But it's very similar because, once again, God, through Isaiah, rebuked his own people. But what is he doing with the other nations? He's just destroying them. He's destroying the Assyrians without any more chances. Like, they literally get one chance with with Jonah going to Nineveh. After that, they're just done. I'm wiping out the entire place. Understand that, how serious he took this wiping nations out. But he's still dealing with this one nation, and that's actually a part of his miracle love, that he would love us so much. And they are the example of his grace and mercy. And it's not that he rejects, everybody get this, it's not that he rejects Israel and Gentiles come in, it's that Israel has rejected him, and he now brings in Gentiles to make Israel jealous. And so we get joined to Israel, Israel never goes away. It's not like he just cut them off and sent them on their way. No, they cut themselves off. They got cut off because they cut him off, the Bible says. And now we're coming in for the only purpose to make them jealous so that they come back in and say, man, if these crazy pagans can get into the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what are we doing? We need to get back in. Okay, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You what? Hypocrites. You pretenders. You actors. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter who are trying to. Now, why is that happening? It's happening because they know how to get in, but they're not getting in, and now they're stopping others from getting in. Do you see the problem there? And let me ask you this. How many pastors really know the truth about the gospel, but they're not preaching it anymore because they want popularity, they want money. Now the Bible says there's going to be a certain judgment for them. Now listen, because we're going to hear that they're twice the son of, of the devil, twice the son of hell as, as others. And so there's going to be different gradients now of wickedness. And so if you want to compare that pagan in Rome to now the Jewish leader doing this kind of wickedness, he is more wicked now in some ways than that pagan in Rome. Because the pagan of Rome didn't know the covenant, wasn't even trying to get in, but he wasn't stopping anybody in that sense. So now the one who knows and doesn't do it will be held to a higher responsibility the Bible teaches. Are you listening? So there is a special judgment coming upon them. Now, I'll pay you $1,000 if you right now read verse 14 out of your NIV. First one to read chapter 23 of Matthew verse 14, I'll give you $1,000. Come on, look in your Bible. Go get it. Y'all don't want $1,000? What's wrong with you? 
TJ, can you get me that, uh, that fan right here, please? Come on, read verse 14 in your NIV. I'll give you $1,000. First one there, come on. Let's get it. Who's going to get rich? Who's going to get paid? Can anybody find it? No, why isn't it there? It's a manuscript variant. Let me explain to you manuscript variants. See, now some people will just skip right over and I'll explain it to you. But I have to and then we'll get back to preaching. When the manuscripts are collected and brought to museums, we've noticed that there's some discrepancies between them. At that point, we have a, a decision to make. Which ones are we going to follow? Which ones are we going to track with? Now, if this to you makes you think you can't trust the entire Bible because out of these thousands of verses, there's every now and then one missing from a certain manuscript or another one has it, etc., you are totally out to lunch when it comes to understanding ancient history. They didn't have photocopiers. They weren't able to save it on their hard drive. So simply, somebody could have been snoozing and just skipped a verse. And so a certain amount of manuscripts that came after that one always had the verse missing because this dude was sleeping. They didn't even number their verses. Most of the time, they didn't even put periods and punctuation. And in the unicycles, they wrote all uppercase. So it just went on and on and on, all caps. How many of you like reading caps and text? Isn't that just the worst when somebody puts all caps? You're like, I hate reading all caps. But that's what it was. All caps, no punctuation, no breaks for verses. Some dude might have skipped something. And then if that one got passed down and then that got passed down, then it just it's missing. So the first thing, it's nothing that's intentional. There's no Da Vinci code here. Now, the second thing is when we find the missing verse in these other manuscripts and verse 14 is shown to be there, like there's something between that woe and this woe, because remember, they didn't have verses. So we see the, the missing part here. The question is, what is it? It does it say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, because you don't teach that we all came from aliens and that we made the pyramids and that really the angels are aliens coming in spaceships. There is nothing ever. Somebody say ever. There is nothing ever in the discrepancies that change the message at all. When we read what is verse 14, you'll feel like, oh, it fits in there perfectly. There's nothing new introduced. There's nothing strange. So what probably happened? The most likely thing, without conspiracy, without believing in ancient aliens, the most uh, likely thing is some manuscript accidentally skipped a verse, unintentional, and that one is the one that survived and became more popular at time. Now, you might say, Pastor, how do you make a decision to put it back in there? Because I take what's called the majority text position. So let's go back to that museum where we see all these manuscripts. Let's say there's a thousand manuscripts of the book of Matthew. Let's say 80% of them have that verse there. Joe says, I side with that verse. Does everybody get that? Now, where did the King James and more of the older translations come from? What we call the majority text. Now, where is the one little argument that the other person on another side will have? It's called the eclectic text, and that's where they prefer, not the majority, where it's found the most. They want to look where it's found the earliest. So if there's one Matthew that's around 70 AD, 
and that one Matthew is the earliest and it doesn't have it, they go, ding, 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 that's the winner. But we don't agree with that. Why? The reason why we don't agree with that is because what if that's the one that had the mistake and the majority of one that got passed along is the right one? Just because it's earlier doesn't mean it's more accurate. It could have had a mistake. Now, at the end of the day, you'll have the majority text folks on this side who are doing a lot of the modern translations like NIV, ESV, etc. And then over here, you have the majority text uh, uh, people that believe that the majority is what should be in there, and it's more of the older translations, King James, New King James, etc. Now, both of us believe God's word is perfect and inerrant. Can we both be right on what is exactly in the text? No, one of us is right and the other one is wrong. So I don't think it's a salvation issue. So if you're more on the eclectic side going, older is better, I'll stick with the NIV, it probably shouldn't have been there. Someone probably took this verse from another gospel, thought it belonged there, and we don't think it was skipped. We think somebody put it there because as I've shared with you before, all four gospels tell Jesus' stories differently. And just because I'm telling you the different version of this message than I did in the first service doesn't mean I've contradicted myself. Have I contradicted myself from the first service because I told it differently to the second service? No, Jesus is a public speaker continually doing these talks. And if Matthew only chose a certain amount of the woes and Luke chose a certain amount of the woes, that could be accurate. But someone might have said, well, one of these woes in Matthew's missing that I saw in Luke. I'm going to put it in there. That's how the eclectic folks would say it was in there. The majority text would just say that somebody skipped it in the newer uh, and the older versions, and it got skipped. But it's the majority that teaches us it belongs there. How many just want to read your Bible again and just believe what it says? Oh, my gosh, Pastor, I'm talking to you now. <sighs> Can't I just read the story of Jonah, uh, Jonah and the whale again? How many are glad you understand why 14 is not in your NIV, but it's in the King James? Okay, here's the new King James. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Everybody say greater condemnation. So everybody get this. Let's, let's just make this flat right here. All the world is sinful. All the wor- world is sinful. And then some pagans start doing some crazy stuff, sacrificing children like we do abortion. They start worshiping false gods. Now, they go up to greater condemnation. When they go to hell, they will be punished more than the person who was just chilling, minding their own business. Does everybody get that? Okay, now imagine over here, greater reward. Everybody say greater reward. Everybody over here loves Jesus, and they want to go to heaven, but these folks start obeying God's word and storing up treasures in heaven. When they go to heaven, they have a greater reward. Everybody say greater reward. We've already learned about that, but now we're learning about greater what? Condemnation, okay? So greater condemnation comes when we steal or manipulate church people for their money and pretend like we're really praying for them when we're just trying to get our attention or get get more likes or more followers on Facebook and Instagram. Here's, Here's an observation to put it in today's culture. Most large churches have an overwhelming amount of women 
and not to be stereotypical, but to use Jesus' example, these women are like widows, many of them without men in their lives, raising their children as single moms. And what the church does is that pastor generally tries to become that surrogate husband in their life, tries to become that father in their life, and starts manipulating those women's emotions so that when they come to church, pastor preach good, make me feel good, now they start giving their money so that pastor can have more, but they're in a relationship, not really with the sheep to a shepherd, but the prostitute to a pimp. And Jesus is saying, you got to stop letting them pimp you like that. That's why I love our church. If you look around, mostly young adults, because we started with that, and we're going to keep growing with that, but I'm not getting younger, only older, and the older I get, we'll attract older people, but we still, a lot of the young adults, and if you notice, there's no greater man or woman uh, thing here. It looks about 50-50, men and women. Why is that? Because I am not playing upon the emotions of women who want me to be for them what a man wasn't. And that's what Jesus said. Don't do that. Now, here's the thing about our finances. You can test us on this. At any time, if you want to know what we're doing, you can talk to my wife or Lauren. We'll give you a printout of our finances in full from right back to that computer right there. And what you will notice if we printed it out, we're up 20% this year than we were last year. And if we were to stop receiving tithes and offerings right now and cut us off 10 months, uh, t- two months uh, early, only at 10 months, we have more at 10 months than we did last year at 12 months. Thank you. God bless you. Give as the Lord gives to you and be blessed. Amen? Because we're not here to take from the widows. We're not here to manipulate so that we can have more. We're not trying to get rich off the conferences and concerts and those things. We're teaching you how to give through tithes and offerings, and hopefully your life is being blessed. Amen? Because that 23% generally comes from people getting raises, promotions. And if you're going through a hard time, it doesn't mean God doesn't love you. Stay faithful. And God will make you fruitful. Okay? Let's go to the next woe. Verse 15. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You what? Hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Now, what did we just learn there? Number one, there are such things as child of hell. See, not everybody's a child of God. How many know Jesus believed there were children of God and children of hell? So not everybody's a child of God. And then what's the second thing we learn? You can be twice as much a child of hell as the person that's next to you. That's just a normal child of hell. Do you see how Jesus multiplies condemnation? Jesus says there's a multiplication of children of hell. So so I, I want everybody to get this. When people ask me this question, oh, pastor, and I've had this happen by people who have survived the Jewish Holocaust. They, they've said it to me like this. Pastor, are you telling me that if my Jewish relatives who died in the Holocaust did not accept Jesus, they will go to hell, suffer for eternity. But if Hitler, the one who caused the Holocaust repents of his sin right before he died or whatever at his deathbed. Maybe he blew, you know, he goes blows his head off and he's dying and then he makes that repentance. He's in heaven. How is that fair? To summarize it, they say, how could Hitler go to heaven just by repenting last minute after killing 10 million people and my Jewish relative go to hell after they were a good person? How many know that's a difficult question to answer if you don't know the Bible? So if you don't know the Bible, why is it easy if you know the Bible? 
because we're comparing Hitler to what the Jewish person did, thinking, oh, they're better than that person. And we all agree, don't we? We all agree that the Jewish person who didn't murder 10 million is better than the, than the, than the Nazi who murdered 10 million. How many know that's, that's true? But we're not compared to that, are we? We are compared to the perfect standard of Jesus. And how is determined whether or not a person goes to heaven or hell is one sin. If you have sinned, you can't go to heaven. It's illegal for you to go to heaven. The only way if you have committed one sin, you can go to heaven is if someone who is sinless has paid your price and will now let you come on their behalf, right? So listen, the only way Hitler can go to heaven and be forgiven of a hundred million sins or all the sins he committed is the same way that you and I go to heaven is by Jesus. It's by Jesus. But now watch, how do people go to hell? By rejecting Jesus. But in hell, will they be treated the same? Not according to God. See, if Hitler did not repent, everybody get this. If Hitler did not repent, his punishment in hell is worse than my sweet grandma who was a Catholic who maybe never was born again. If she was not born again, she's going to hell because of her sin. She had no atonement, but her time in hell for eternity is different than the time in hell for Hitler. There are gradients of condemnation. So God is just. Yeah, we totally agree it's better not to be a Hitler. That's true. But you don't get to go to heaven by being better than Hitler. It's impossible for anyone with a sin to get to heaven. It is literally like you trying to flap your wings and fly right now. As impossible as it is for all of us to flap our wings and fly is as impossible as it is for any person born in the human race to earn their way to heaven. And as simple, everybody get this, and as simple as it is for everyone here to get into a plane and be flown in the air is as simple as it is for all of us to be saved. But now let's say Hitler does get saved in that last minute. He repented like the thief on the cross. Is it right for God to allow him to go to heaven? Absolutely. Let's say the Jewish person, the Catholic person, the Hindu person, whatever, dies without Christ. Is it right for them to go to hell? Yes. But now listen, in heaven, does Hitler have as many rewards and, and as status as you or I would have? Absolutely not. He wasted his life. His life and his, his spiritual life only began as blood was draining out of his brain. The thief on the cross only had 30 seconds, uh, you know, two, two minutes, whatever, to live for Jesus. We've been living for Jesus for, for 20 plus years or those of you here for decades. And so the idea is store up treasures in heaven. So don't just think to yourself, I just want to get to heaven. That's awesome. But you need to think about eternity. And eternity is based on what you did here for Jesus. So God is just. Amen? Okay, verse 16. Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools. How many know it's good to call somebody a blind fool every now and then? Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by the oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore... 
Anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Look at your neighbor and say, stop swearing. How many know if you're talking to somebody, how many know if you are talking to somebody and they say to you, I'm telling you the truth, I swear on my grave, my daddy's grave, I swear on my babies, I swear on that. How many know if they start talking like that, that's a number one indication you shouldn't believe anything they have to say. The moment, the moment you start swearing on stuff, I'm already thinking you're shady. Even if you are pointing to the, the lake saying that's east, but then you say, I swear on my mom, I swear on this, I'm like, I don't even know if I should believe you now. The fact you had to say it like that sounds like you're desperate. Jesus was correcting that practice, but it's more than that. Let's get the application here. They knew they weren't supposed to swear by God's temple or the altar or by God himself. Like, I swear to God or I swear by the temple. So they tried to be slick and say, well, I swear by the gold that's in the temple or I swear by heaven. I swear by heaven. And so he rebukes them and says, what makes the gold worth swearing by, according to you, is that it is in the temple. So you're already swearing by the temple. What makes heaven a place that you want to swear by is that God is there. So you haven't got around it. What is the point we can take today is that you can't get around God. They were trying to get around God. So take, for example, somebody goes, well, I don't watch pornography, but I watch Game of Thrones. You see, but doesn't Game of Thrones show sex scenes with women's tops off? Hello, somebody. You see, I did my research before I got into that show, and I realized if I was going to watch that show, I was going to see these kinds of things, which is equivalent to pornography. But people want to say, oh, it's just a show. I'm just, I'm watching it for the drama. See, I thank God for apps like VidAngel that you can get that, cut that stuff out. But listen, if in your mind you're watching perversion, but then you're saying to yourself, but it's not hustler, it's not playboy, it's not whatever. See, you're trying to get around God. Or if you're being bitter towards people, but you're like, oh, they deserve it. I, I would really forgive them if they meant it, but since they haven't asked for forgiveness the right way, I can hold a grudge. We're no different than the Jewish people trying to get around what they could swear by and what they couldn't swear by. It's a little game we're playing, not with God, but with ourselves. And so follow God all the way, amen? Don't swear at all. Leave that alone. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Don't be perverted at all. Don't, don't be bitter at all. Any command that God gives us, say yes and amen. And amen means so be it. Yes, right on. Yes, so be it. I agree, amen? Amen. You agree. Let's keep going. Verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You what? Hypocrites. Now watch this. Watch this. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Do you get that? So, see, this is what I was trying to go before. Because some of y'all don't tithe, but then you're getting on the church and all the money that they waste and all those things. You see, God is saying back to you, you are not better. You're worse than them. Because at least they're doing what they should do, which is a command. But what are you supposed to do? Both and. I both give my finances and I practice justice, mercy, 
faithfulness. We are to be as generous with kindness as we are with tithing. We are to give of our lives to the hurting and the people around us. The Bible even says it like this. How can you say you love God who you don't see and neglect loving your brother who you do see? Because God, you can't really hang out with him in a literal way and have to deal with dealing with emotions and relational issues. But your brother you see and you deal with when they step on your toe or say something you don't like or whatever. And God is saying, if you can't forgive them, be in peace with them, how do you know how to be in peace with me? When I correct, when I, when I ask you to change, etc. And so the Bible is teaching us here that they were doing the right things by tithing. He could never have said that to the pagans of Rome. I'm glad that you guys worship Zeus, but keep doing this other stuff. No, 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 no. There was nothing positive about any of their religions. But with the Jewish people, he points out another positive. He's like, you're right. You are supposed to give of all these things. But the problem is you don't just give your money to the church and then walk away and treat people like a jerk on your job, be mean to people in traffic, and not extend forgiveness. You're actually supposed to give your heart and your life like you give your finances. And the idea is there, you're so concerned about a gnat, but you're swallowing a camel. You're so concerned about these little things, but you're missing the big picture. Let's go to the next one. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You what? Hypocrites, thank you. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will be clean as well. Keep going. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You what? Hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and what? Wickedness. Those two woes are very similar. This is where it comes down to all of us here. If on the outside you look spiritual, but on the inside you're wicked, God says, I don't care what you're doing on the outside. That's not going to stop you from going to hell because what's on the inside is what counts. And some of us think that what we do on the outside is like bringing God a wheelbarrow of our good works and saying, God, here's, here's 10 pounds of my good works. What does that give me in exchange for your forgiveness and your grace? So we think to ourselves, the more we do, the more we'll get in forgiveness. And the Bible says it doesn't work anything like that. As a matter of fact, God gives us all the forgiveness we'll ever need at moment one. And now he says, live differently. I don't have to earn grace by doing more good things, more good things. As a matter of fact, I could never change myself. Only God can change me. So the whole mindset that they were under, that they would do more external works and then try to work on themselves inwardly, that is exactly the opposite of what he's teaching them. It's almost like, the, the person who went to interview a nun in a convent there on the monas, in the monastery, uh, the, the interviewer wanted to know what is a nun's life like. And the nun was sharing with her all these things they do. And so much of it is good. The, the nuns pray and fast and volunteer and serve the hurting and the dying in hospitals and hospices and visit orphanages and all of those things. And this interviewer was so impressed with the external works of this nun that she asked her something along the lines of, well, then what does it feel like? to be free from sin and to know you're a good person. 
And the nun confessed to her, said, I'm not really as good as you think I am. The whole time you've been interviewing me, I've been looking at a stain in the stained glass window, and I'm mad at the nun that I asked to clean it because she missed a spot, and I want to go yell at her right now. What the nun was confessing, even as Mother Teresa did doubting God at the end of her life, what they were confessing and telling us is there's nothing out here that changes in here. The Shaolin monk may rock on rice paper, but that doesn't mean he has a clean heart. The Shaolin monk is just as perverted as the man at the bar today. He's just as away from God as anyone else. External disciplines, external cleansing doesn't change here. But do we do good works? Yeah, not the kind of the Shaolin monk, though that would be fun to try to do karate for spirituality. That you might, I see sometimes they do that, you know, Christian yoga. But what are the good works? You know, taking care of orphans and widows, preaching the gospel. But never get this confused. You're never changing yourself by doing that. You're not changing yourself. Only God changes you. And whatever I would do, get it, friends, whatever I would do wicked against God, I could not make up by all of those good works. And if I can't make it up as your pastor and I've been paid and given 20 plus years of ministry, how much less you? I've written books. I've traveled overseas. I've helped counsel all these people. And if I don't confess my sins to the Jesus that died for me and can cleanse me, I will not be clean. How much less you? How many works do you have to bring to the car wash of of your life and try to change yourself? Probably not as much as most pastors, right? And it won't work. It won't work for nuns. It won't work for me. It won't work for Nicodemus even. He said, you have to be born again. That's how you get clean. Amen? Amen. Okay. Here's the last and longest one right here. Verse 29. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Thank you. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started, you snakes, you broad of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on the earth from the righteous blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered. Look, he puts it right on them. Whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all of this will come on what? This generation. Say it again, this generation. This generation. If you ever wanted to know why KKK, white supremacists, can be anti-Jew and call themselves Christian at the same time you just read one of their Bible verses. Here's how they look at it. And if you want to understand why most of Germany was Christian during the Nazi Holocaust, I will help you understand it right here. Just a little example of the German Christian background. During World War II, there's a story about when uh, Christmas came around, the uh, soldiers on both sides met in the middle of the battlefield and shared Christmas meals together and sang Christmas songs. Many of the Germans were Christian in identity, as are today's white supremacists, yet they are anti-Semitic. Why is that? 
They take the words of Jesus against the Jewish people here, and they say, the Jewish people are the scum of the earth. They are the ones condemned to hell. They crucified, killed prophets. They did that to Jesus, and now upon them is all the guilt of the sins of the world. And that's why they come up with all of those conspiracies that the Jewish people are ruining the world, running the world, etc., Now, is this true? Absolutely not. Number one, he says it will come on this generation. How did God deal out his punishment for the Jewish people rejecting the Messiah? What did that generation suffer? What did they suffer? The destruction of the temple. That was God's judgment. You see, we don't get permission to put more judgment than what God put judgment on. Just like I said before, if you see me spanking my child and you're like, let's shoot him now, you don't get to do that. You see, God said, because you did that, and we're going to get into Matthew 24, he literally tells them the temple's going to be destroyed. You are now going to be dispersed, and that happened in 70 AD. But did he give up on them? No. As a matter of fact, as we get into the next verse, it talks about how much he loves them. And then we see Paul himself is a Jew, and Paul says, I wish myself accursed just so more Jews could get saved. And then, as I told you before in Revelation, as I have it there, 7, 1 through 8, thousands of Jews get saved in the end times and come to Christ. And even now, as a sign of the end time, they've been restored to their land because God promised that he would in the 1940s. That came about, and now they are coming to Christ more than in any other time. This is an awesome fulfillment of prophecy of what God's doing with the Jewish people. He has not neglected them. You white supremacist nincompoop, what are you doing? You're literally doing the work of Satan. Satan is against God's people. Don't do that. Don't be a Nazi. Don't be a white supremacist. They're going to hell. They have been deceived. The woes against the Jewish people was a father disciplining their children. God was not forsaking that nation. And even if he had, like he did with Egypt, like he did with Assyria, we're still not to be anti-Assyrians. I'm not supposed to walk up to a modern-day Assyrian and say God said he would wipe you off the face of the earth in the book of Nehemiah or you know Isaiah, one of these books. No, I'm supposed to say that punishment your people received 3,000 years ago is good. We're done with that. Now come to Jesus. I love you right? Even if God had said, I'm done with the Jewish people, it's only going to be Christians now, we, we, we would still have to love them, right? Just treat them, like, treat them as you would a Hindu. Love Hindus. Treat them nicely and kindly. But thankfully, he has not turned his back on them. And why is that so important? Because every promise, get this, everybody, every promise to the church is a promise that was first based in Israel, So if Israel does not get the fulfillment of their promised land and the son of David ruling upon a throne in Israel, etc., then the church doesn't get anything either. In other words, if God can't take care of your older brother Israel, he won't take care of the younger brother called the church. 
So we still have to preach the gospel to them. So understand this, that Jewish people without Christ will still go to hell just like anybody else without Christ goes to hell. But the nation has been promised to survive whatever they've gone through. And then when you look at the Holocaust, that evil that was done against them was turned for good because the first time in over a thousand years they got their nation back. And now the nation of Israel... Remember, is the fig tree, and when we get to the signs of the time, Matthew 24, next chapter, one of the, the, the clocks we're supposed to watch is Israel. Amen? Rachel, would you come, please? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not what? Willing. Why does anybody go to hell? Because they were not willing. Why are these Jewish people being judged? Is it because Jesus didn't love them? No, it's because they were not willing. God never sends anyone to hell that hasn't first chosen it. The beauty of this entire passage is that God loves them enough to give them this warning, even in hopes that they would change. And to this point, now he says, it's over. The last chance has been given. But I look at the scriptures, and I see that promise is still there for us. In Psalm 91, it says God wants to cover us in the shadow of his wings and bring us close to him. And what we have today now is a choice. We as a church can reject our Savior, become compromised, backslidden, lukewarm, religious, hypocritical, and suffer just like they did. Or we today can learn from them and become willing. Look at what it says in verse 38. Look, your house is left to you desolate. This is predicting the fall of Jerusalem. Now look at verse 39. Here's how I know. He never gave up on them, even to this day. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so the Bible says that towards the end, of the days of judgment upon the earth. The Israelite people see that their ancestors had missed the Messiah in his first coming. They then repent and come to Christ. And the Bible says it's about 12,000 from each of the tribes, totaling in 144,000. And they go out in the kingdom of the Antichrist upon that earth at that time, and they preach the gospel, and they welcome Jesus back as he comes. When he came into Jerusalem the first time. They said, Hosanna, bless is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the same words there. Psalm 18. And they will be there, hallelujah, to meet him when he comes. They will be there with their arms lifted up, waiting for him to redeem them and save them. And so when I talk to some Jewish people, they're like, the only reason why you want us in Jerusalem is so Armageddon can come. I'm like, yes, that's partly true. But I want you to be on the right side of Armageddon. Come out with us in the rapture before it comes. Leave a testimony. Leave a testimony so that those who remain or are left behind can follow Christ in that time of great judgment. Because as judgment comes, 
it will come upon the earth and as they surround Israel to stop the people of God at that time, God will come back because from beginning to end, it's always been about that people. And even though most of us here are not Jewish in origin, we now worship a Jewish Messiah. And because of them and the good they did do, by God's grace, obviously, we're engrafted in with them. So today, would you stand up with me and say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Come on, somebody. We worship you, Jesus. Band and altar workers, would you come, please?